I'll ask the rest of you, if you would please open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 30, this morning will be our passage. As Bob mentioned, it's the passage where Jesus first sends out the 12 apostles and then recounts the beheading of John the Baptist, and then the disciples, apostles, return to Jesus with good reports of their success. It's a passage that reminds us that ministry comes with joys and griefs, with highs and lows. Uh, For my doctor of ministry program, as you know, I usually every semester have some sort of a preaching project, and so the preaching project for this semester will be to preach through the the book of 3 John, which will only take us two weeks. Um, So this is a good passage to launch into that passage or that book with 3 John, as it's a manual really for the support of Christian ministries and what to do when people in the church won't support Christian missionaries. And so next week we'll, we'll jump into 3 John and uh, the plan is to spend two weeks there, uh, but you know how plans go. But for this morning we'll be in Mark chapter 6 looking at verses 7 to 30. Please follow along as I read. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. 
And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity and we thank you for its honesty. We thank you that your word sometimes holds shocking surprises for us. We thank you, Lord, that even though often our inclination is to expect only good things in the Christian life, to expect it to be easy and carefree, to expect it to be always fruitful and joyful, the reality is that your word presents a different uh, perception. Over and over again, your word gives us not a fantasy, but a reality that in a fallen world, life is hard. In a fallen world that is opposed to the king whom you have set on your holy hill, Zion, who rejects him and rebels against him and who, according to Psalm 2, says, plots together to figure out how to throw off his rule, the message of Jesus Christ will receive opposition. And sometimes that opposition will even lead some of our brothers and sisters to their very death. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. We thank you, Lord, that he was so faithful that he cared nothing for the world, but only for you and the mission that you have given to him. We pray, Lord, that we would model that same type of mentality, that we too would care nothing for the world, but only this gospel ministry that you have given to us. Lord, the reality is that each one of us live in a variety of scenarios, each one having its own complexities, each one having its own details, its own things to work out. So we ask that as we look at the general principles of your word, that your spirit would help us to apply these general principles to the specifics of our own life. Lord, certainly I could not take enough time to apply your word to every person here in every situation, but we praise you that we do not depend on me right now. We praise you that we depend on you the hearer and the speaker equally. This is your word. This is your ministry. The spirit is your spirit, Father and Son. So we ask for help now as we approach the holy ground of your word. Continue to give us, as you so faithfully have, hearts that are set on the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ in whatever ways that looks like for us individuals in our lives and our scenarios. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so together we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Understanding your purpose in life has a way of giving you a focus so that you can accomplish what it is that you intend to or were intended to do in the very first place. This is a principle, of course, that we all understand, 
And yet so often it's a principle that eludes us. Think about your days in school, whether they're present or they are behind you, maybe a few years or maybe a few decades. Think back to those days in school when you were given assignments. Complete these math problems and show your work. Write a three-page paper on your family's history. Craft a 10-minute persuasive speech on any particular subject that you want to share with your class. In each of those assignments, whether you liked them or not, whether you understood it or not, in each of those assignments, there was a purpose. And that purpose then helped you as you set out to accomplish those assignments, rather than a teacher saying something like, just go home and do something. You go home, and of course, none of us would do the something that the teacher meant to do. We'd play outside, or we'd hang out with our friends. We'd do something that we wanted to do. So it's the purpose that gives us the focus that we need in life. You think about this in a career, for instance. What is it that my employer or my boss expects me to do and expects me to accomplish and then I can set my mind on that thing and it allows me to filter out everything else. I can decide that no, that doesn't meet the purpose so that's not going to get my attention or at least it's going to be on the bottom of the list. If I have some time, I'll get to it but, but this is what I am supposed to do. Understanding your purpose and the Focusing effect that it has is is helpful in every area of life, and it's especially helpful for us as the church of Jesus Christ. What is the purpose of the church of Jesus Christ? In the profound and jaw-dropping wisdom of God, he has determined that it would be the disciples of Jesus, both then and now, who would carry on the mission of Jesus. First, while Jesus was still with them, he would send out the twelve and they would do exactly what he told them to do, which was exactly what he had been doing in the first place, even down to casting out demons and healing the sick. Then, As the apostles took the message of the gospel to the world on the command of Jesus Christ and then faded out of the scene, they planted churches. And they made sure that those churches had elders in them so that those churches were structured biblically, were run biblically, administrated biblically, but most especially that their purpose was focused biblically. So that the baton that Jesus handed the apostles would then be handed to each and every local church. And by God's grace, that process is overseen by him. It's Jesus that's building the church, which is why all the way down to 2022, we have churches today all over the world who hold that baton in our very hands. Because the saints have been faithful to the mission that God has given us. What is the purpose of the church? What's the purpose of this church? The purpose of the church, the purpose of this church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and making sure that we support the proclamation 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. We can do secondary things like have children's ministry or Sunday school, and they're wonderful things, but everything that we do must focus us in on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the proclamation of that gospel, and the supporting of that gospel. Why? Because we understand there's only one message that saves a soul from the wrath of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus sends his disciples out, and then Jesus sends them out as apostles who would then teach the church to do the very same thing Jesus taught them to do. There Jesus says, or it says there, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the, even to the end of the age. While every member of the body of Christ, universal, is, uh, plays a different role within that mission, every member of the body of Christ, universal, plays a role in that mission. Not everyone does the same thing. Not everyone is the hand or the foot. The body is comprised of all of its members and each member contributes to the building up of the body for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are some whom God calls to the primary task of preaching the gospel, just like he did to the apostles. And then there are others who are called to support those who are called to the primary task of preaching the gospel. Don't misunderstand me. Everyone is to preach the gospel. You think of the early church as they were persecuted and scattered. They went about preaching the word everywhere they went, even those who were not apostles. And yet what we see in the ministry, uh, as the, the Bible unfolds, the New Testament ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God in his infinite wisdom and grace has appointed pastor teachers and has appointed evangelists. We call them missionaries often. And then he has tasked the church with the responsibility to make sure that those individuals have everything that they need in order to accomplish the mission and to devote their lives singularly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the purpose for the church and, your, and for your life as an individual within the church, within this church. And understanding this purpose then helps us to maintain the necessary focus that we need in order to fulfill the overall calling on our lives from Jesus to make disciples. If we allow our focus to be shifted onto something else, or if we don't see everything in our lives underneath that central focus, the one of making disciples, then we'll be spinning our wheels and wasting our time, wasting our efforts, wasting the resources that God has given to us as believers in Jesus Christ, whose function it is by God to preach the gospel. Parents and grandparents, you help make disciples by teaching your children that they are sinners who need a savior. 
And Jesus Christ is that Savior. They will find salvation in no one else other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Co-workers and neighbors help to make disciples by teaching their co-workers and neighbors that they are sinners who are in need of a Savior. And they will find salvation in no one other than Jesus Christ. Friends and family members help make disciples by helping their friends and family members to understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And they will find salvation in no one else than Jesus Christ. You see, making disciples is not just something that the people that we send out do. Making disciples is something that every single Christian in the ordinary routines of daily life do. And so if we don't understand what our focus is to be, then we will be tempted to see those other things, parenting, working, neighboring, having friends and family members. We will be tempted to see them as fulfilling some other thing in our life, albeit probably a good thing. You need to make money in order to survive. But if we miss the reality that Christians have been made alive by God to get on board with the mission of God, then we will look back on our lives and think, man, I could have done that so much better. So, in order for us to be encouraged to not end up in that way, in order for us to be encouraged to keep our focus centrally on the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we come to Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 30. It's a helpful reminder for us as we see the experiences of life as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The reality is that life as a disciple of Jesus Christ is filled with highs and it's filled with lows. Sometimes it thrills your heart, and sometimes it breaks your heart. But it's worth it, because you recognize that the one you follow is the very Son of God, is the King of kings, is the Lord of lords, has established the kingdom of God, and will one day return to make that kingdom physical and present to rule and reign with his people forever. That's the central focus that we need to maintain. And yet, so often, our lives can, can become unbalanced. Unbalanced when we hit a road bump or perhaps hit a wall that stops us dead in our tracks, that catches us completely off guard, that sometimes might make us say things like the disciples said in the boat, Lord, don't you care? One of the things that we can be so thankful for about the Bible is its honesty. When you read your Bibles, you see a real life picture of life in a fallen world. If this were some made up religion by men, I don't think it would have all the gory stories in it that it has. I don't think it would have all the stories that even in the Gospel of Mark so far make the disciples look as though they really didn't understand Jesus at all. It tells us the truth. It tells us the truth that following Jesus Christ will not be easy, but it will be entirely worth it. 
It tells us the truth, even as we move into this new section of the Gospel of Mark, which will culminate in chapter 8, it tells us the truth that the fundamental reality of living life as a disciple of Jesus Christ will will be one fundamentally and primarily of self-denial and of carrying a cross through this life all the way into eternity. It tells us the truth about life in a fallen world. And so here, in order to make sure that our focus is on the proclamation of the gospel, is on making disciples, I think that we can get two guidelines for carrying on the ministry of Jesus that help us to stay focused on the gospel. Two guidelines for carrying on the mission of Jesus that help us to stay focused on the gospel. You might wonder why we're taking these two passages together. Well, you see in verses 7 to 13, the disciples are sent out. And then Mark interrupts that story with the story of the recounting of the beheading of John the Baptist. But then you'll notice that in verse 30, the disciples, or now as he calls them, apostles, return to Jesus and they tell him all that they had done and taught. They go out. It's as if Mark says, oh yeah, by the way. Their ability to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to preach repentance, their ability to do that is wonderful and great, and that will continue throughout their life and ministry, but there will also be suffering that comes in ministry. This is another moment where we get in the Gospel of Mark what's typically called a Markan sandwich. He tells a story, he interrupts the story, then he circles back to finish the story. And so these stories really need to be taken together so that we can have a right grasp on the mission of Jesus Christ and what it is that you and I play and should expect within that mission. So two guidelines for carrying on the mission of Jesus that help us stay focused on the gospel. First of all, in verses 7 to 13, we must remember the mission. We must remember the mission. This is a helpful filter for us as we think about everything else in our life. The way we budget, the way we look for a place to live, the way we think about jobs, the way we think about parenting, the way we think about everything else needs to be filtered through remembering the mission that Jesus has given to the church. Now, you understand, I think, that this is, this is the disciples. This is a unique sending out. This was a unique calling that was specific to them. There are things here that apply to them that do not and will not apply to us. Yet, just as Bob read from Acts chapter 1, the church has received a very similar calling to go out to make disciples, not just in little towns in northern Israel, but in fact, to the very ends of the earth. And so we learn from this particular passage. Verses 7 to 13 begins, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. As we think about remembering the mission, and as we think about this particular mission, we see, first of all, that theirs was a ministry of authority, a ministry of authority. You think back to what you've seen so far throughout the Gospel of Mark. From Jesus, you have seen profound authority, plainly 
recognizable authority. Do you remember where his authority first manifested itself? In a synagogue in Capernaum. But do you remember what it was specifically about Jesus and his authority that the people were most in awe of? It was not that he had cast out a demon that day. It was his teaching. They were amazed by the authoritative teaching of Jesus Christ. Christians disagree on the role of spiritual gifts uh, as they continue on in the church. Christians probably disagree on the role of spiritual warfare and whether or not there are there is still demon activity in the world today. None of that really matters. The point here is that Jesus sends the disciples out with his very own authority. When today we have someone who perhaps officiates a wedding or performs some type of ceremony, it's often said something like, by the power invested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and or the state of Oregon, I now pronounce you husband and wife. When a human being invokes authority, we have to say something like that, by the power invested in me, but when Jesus invokes authority, or rather, Jesus doesn't have to invoke authority. Jesus is authority. And Jesus' authority, he then delegates down to the disciples here, and in the Great Commission, he reminds us, all of us, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Every time Jesus sends a disciple out, whether it's these disciples or it's disciples today, a disciple is sent out in the authority of Jesus Christ. And their responsibility is primarily to do the very thing that Jesus came to do. You remember from, Acts, or from Mark chapter 1, verse 38, the people wanted to, the disciples wanted Jesus to go back to his ministry of healing. And he said, no, I have come to preach. So we need to go to the other villages. Jesus' primary ministry was not of miracle working and demon exercising, but his primary ministry was one of teaching. And everything else he did miraculously pointed to the validity of his teaching. Which is why you then in the book of Acts see the apostles able to do some of those same miraculous things. But you'll notice, even as you read the book of Acts, those things start to dwindle down. And so rather than heal Timothy of his ailment, Paul says, drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Now that's another sermon, wine drinking as well. But Rather than just going and healing Timothy and saying, hey, I'm going to heal you so that we can get on with the ministry, Paul just says, hey, God's given you a, a, a natural means to be able to take care of your stomach based on the thoughts behind medicine then. And so we see those miraculous things starting to dwindle even in the book of Acts. Why? Because it was never about the miraculous. It was always about the message. And so Jesus sends them out in his authority. But as it is the very beginning of the spreading of the ministry of Jesus Christ, he gives them, just as he has, authority over the unclean spirit. Something that Jesus has already quite clearly demonstrated. 
Not only was it a ministry of authority, but verses 8 to 10 tell us it was a ministry of dependence or reliance. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. First of all, they were to be dependent on God for what they needed. Jesus sends them out in the very same way that God sent the people of Israel out of Egypt. They were to eat the Passover with their belt fastened with a tunic and a stick in their hand so that they would be ready to move as soon as it became obvious. I think this is the principle that Jesus wants them to learn, to be ready to move when God wants you to move and to be solely dependent and reliant upon how God would provide for you. Notice the emphasis on what he told them not to take. Don't take a bag. Don't take bread. Don't take any money with you. How would you respond to that? I want you to go all throughout Israel. And all you can take is a stick in your hand, the tunic that you're wearing, the sandals on your feet, and nothing else. Lord, can I get a toothbrush at least? No, nothing else. They'll give it to you at the Hampton Inn. I don't think they have those then. See, see what Jesus is teaching his disciples as he sends them out for the very first time, as he begins to train them and develop them, he's teaching them just like he has already done, even in the midst of the storm, that they can trust him. That if he sends them out in his authority, he will provide for them in every way that they need it, even when it doesn't look like it should work that way. Even in illogical ways, even as man looks on it and says, Lord, this ain't going to work, Jesus says, trust me. Just trust me. I think it would be a fun exercise. Maybe you can do this in the meet and greet to sit around and talk about the ways that Jesus has done this for you. The times when you had a family meeting, perhaps, and you had to get together with your wife or your husband or maybe even the kids and say, you know what, ends aren't meeting this month, and I really don't know what we're going to do. We may lose the house. We may lose the property. I really don't have any clue how the Lord is going to provide for us. And then all of a sudden, a check just shows up. Or a, a brother or a sister from church just stops by and says, hey, I was just thinking about you. I thought maybe this could be helpful for you. It's happened. It happens all the time to the saints. It'd be a fun exercise for the meet and greet, wouldn't it? Eat some cookies, talk to the glory of God. This is what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. If I send you, then you can trust me. If I send you, I will provide for you. Now, did the disciples get it? No. In just a little bit, he's going to feed 5,000, and then he's going to feed 4,000, and he's going to even rebuke them saying, don't you understand? But let me ask you this. Did their understanding of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' involvement in their life hinder in any way Jesus' involvement in their life? 
their little faith did not throw Jesus off. This isn't like the experience that Jesus had in Nazareth where the people did not believe and so he left. This is the experience that we have when we sometimes have to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus meets you right there because he tells you, it just takes a little mustard seed and you can move a mountain. Just trust me. Even if it's just a little bit, even if it's stained with your own doubts, we should always, always glory in the power of God to accomplish his purposes in our lives even though we are unworthy, even though we fail time and time again, even though we don't trust, we don't obey, even though we still wrestle with the flesh, God never kicks you out of his kingdom once you're in it. We could track back through the Gospel of Mark to see some of the highs or maybe actually low points that the disciples have already exhibited so far, but we have to keep moving. So I'll let you do that at home. Suffice it to say that these guys were not picked because they were the best and brightest. Isn't this exactly what the apostle Paul told the Corinthians? First Corinthians chapter two, verses three to five, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Let me ask you something for a second. If I got up here and I was like this and started preaching to you like that, would you listen to me? You'd probably think, oh, that poor guy, this isn't going to go good. He's going to fail his program. But Paul says he was with them in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And then he says, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. His sermon wasn't quite so eloquent eloquent today. Poor guy, he's going to fail his program. Isn't that how we assess, side note, isn't that how we often assess the preaching of the word of God? And there's a a right place to do that. You know, it just didn't really get me today. Really, the Bible didn't get you today? I think that's a problem with you, not the Bible. All right, end side note. He says his speech and his his message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what we want. We don't primarily want eloquence, though that will often accompany the power of God. What we want is the power of God because it's the power of God that saves the sinner not the ability of someone to convince the sinner. Because if we can convince the sinner that following Jesus is a good idea, then someone else can come and convince the sinner that it's a bad idea. We want it to be resting in the power of God, and this is exactly what Jesus wants them to understand. Don't take anything with you. Expect that God will provide everything for you. Not only to, should they rely on God, but they are were to rely on the hospitality and generosity of others. Verse 10 says, he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Likely, I mean, this could have been a prohibition against trying to level up in their accommodations. 
maybe someone in the town really liked their preaching and liked the message and they said, hey, you know what? That place that you're staying is not so great. Why don't you come and stay in my place? It's so much nicer. It could have been a protection against the disciples' temptation to try to get more. But the reality is I think this was even a precursor to them understanding that if they were going to accomplish the mission that Jesus gave to them, they were going to have to depend on God and they were going to have to depend on the hospitality of the church. This is exactly what we do with missionaries, isn't it? We send the Santiago's, we send the Jeremy's to various parts of the country and we say, hey, we will contribute all that we can in order to make sure that you can focus on the ministry of the gospel. But you know something? We also do that right here. You graciously provide for me to be able to make a living and support my family so that I can preach the gospel. Thank you. That's important. It's a biblical reflection of the church. It shows that we get it. But in other ways as well, as we think about supporting the gospel, there are people in those rooms down there in the nursery and in classroom number two, I think it is, in the children's ministry, who are doing the very same things, supporting the ministry of the gospel by skipping out on corporate worship. Maybe skipping out's not the best phrase. You know what I mean. By deciding that they will sacrifice this time with the body so that they can go and serve the children of this body. Isn't that amazing? See, that's the perspective that we have to have. It's not, oh, I have to serve this week. It's, I get to support the ministry of the gospel by investing this gospel into little children and helping those parents be able to sit in a service so that they can be encouraged and refreshed. See, this is church life. This is what we do. And even in some ways, we do that by raising money for things like roofs that cost a ridiculous amount of money. Why do we do that? Because it's very helpful for us to have a building so that we can continue the ministry of the gospel. Just ask friends of mine and perhaps some of yours who don't have the convenience and the luxury of meeting in a building. They have to rent out hotel rooms when they do extra things. We just gather in the fireside room. So they are to rely not on God only, but also on the hospitality and generosity of others. It's a ministry of dependence. It's a ministry of discernment. Verse 11. They will be accepted by some, and just like Jesus in Nazareth, they will be rejected by others. He tells them, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus was essentially saying to them, There's a hesitancy and an urgency to this ministry. Don't sit and argue with people. If they won't receive you, that's okay. But when you leave, shake off the dust and move on to the next place. That was exactly what Jews would do when they left the Gentile territory. If they traveled through the Gentile territory, as soon as they got into Jewish territory, they would shake off the dust as a sign of judgment against the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, do that against the people of Israel who will not receive their own Messiah. It's a judgment against their rejection. And he's teaching them that there's an urgency to that. Now, we don't model that in the same way. 
Otherwise, you'd have to sell your house and buy a new one every week when someone says, I'm not interested in your Jesus. Man, I got to move again. It's different, right? We bear with in ways that the disciples really didn't have time to do. We bear with people because the gospel, thanks be to God, by their faithfulness has spread farther. And now the church is all over the world in various areas as outposts of the kingdom of God who continue the mission even in opposition. So a ministry of discernment and then also a ministry of obedience, verses 12 to 13. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Notice the emphasis on what they did first. They went out just like Jesus told them and they proclaimed that people should repent just like Jesus did. Turn from your sins. Believe the gospel. This is most likely shorthand to signal us to go back to Mark 1.15, which is the message of Jesus, that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, they must repent and believe the gospel which Jesus was preaching. They didn't become innovative, they didn't be creative, they just did what Jesus told them, which is such a good gift for uncreatives like me. We don't have to figure out cool church programs We just have to do what God tells us. We just got to be faithful to the Bible because it's the power of the word that saves, not the power of awe. Gospel ministry is not about shock and awe. It's about the old, old story. And then verse 13, and they cast out many demons and were anointing with oil many who were sick and healed them. It it was a successful ministry. They were doing the very things that Jesus was doing, except this time they're having to anoint people with oil, which was both a medicinal practice and probably a illustration, a sign pointing to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. James in James 5 tells the people of the church, if any of them were sick, they should call the elders. The elders should anoint them with oil and pray for them. And he says it's not the oil that heals, but the prayer of faith that heals the one who is sick. Again, another sermon for another time, but it's fun to chew on those things, isn't it? So we remember the message. We remember that our lives are to be be centered on the proclamation of the gospel. Some of us will play more primarily out front roles of proclamation. Others will play more secretive, sort of hidden roles of supporting that proclamation. But the reality is both of those roles are equally important. There are no varying degrees of importance in gospel ministry. If you're a Christian, you are important. And what you do is important. Remember that. It takes everyone. So remember the message, and then secondly, recognize the cost. And I recognize that I need to hurry a little bit. Recognize the cost, verses 14 to 30. Uh, This is the recounting of John the Baptist. We saw in Mark chapter 1 that John had been arrested, and at the point of his arrest, that was when Jesus then took over to preach repentance. And now we flash back to the death. John had already been executed, beheaded at the request of Herodias, uh, the wicked wife of wicked Herod. And so Mark flashes us back to that to remind us that in, in 
connection with and put next to the success of their ministry, you can almost imagine them coming back in verse 30 saying, Jesus, Jesus, it worked. Mark wants his readers to know that it it sometimes will work, but it will sometimes cost you your head. And so in verses 14 to 16, we, we read about Herod hearing about Jesus and his concern is raised. King Herod heard of it. Heard of what? Heard of what was happening. Heard of him sending out the disciples. Heard of the miracles happening and the preaching of the gospel happening. For Jesus' name had become known. Jesus' fame was beginning to spread. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he's Elijah. And others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And you can see the hair on the back of his neck standing up. You can, I think there's some panic in Herod's voice. He doesn't understand what's happening. All he can do is attribute it to that righteous man whom he killed, who perhaps is back from the grave. And then it begins to recount the story of Herod arresting John in verses 17 to 20. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. You notice it's, it's shockingly similar to Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was the evil brainchild behind all of Ahab's wickedness. Ahab was a wicked man, make no mistake. But it was Jezebel who was pulling the strings. Herod was responsible for this. He was a weak-willed, pathetic excuse for a leader. But Herodias was behind the scenes pulling the strings. Which, on the flip side, men, doesn't it make you so thankful for a godly wife who doesn't do things like that? I mean, you know, probably no one's going to ask for the head of someone else but who rather than trying to pull the strings in your home gives you godly advice and godly input and then just lets you lead the way the Lord determined that you should? What a gift. But not so for Herod. Verse 18 says, For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John, God bless him the best, most faithful witness to Jesus Christ who has ever lived. Matthew tells us that. Jesus tells us that. The one who looked this fake king right in the face and said, what you're doing is against God's law. Yet Herod didn't have the strength to be able to do anything about it, so his wife pulled the strings. Verse 19, and Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Notice what Herod knew about John, and yet he did it anyway. Does it remind you of anybody else in the story of the Gospels? A man named Pontius Pilate. This man is innocent. Crucify him. Okay, if you say so. When he heard him, 
He was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. There was something about the preaching of John that in his bones Herod knew was right. It perplexed him, but he heard him gladly, reminding us that when the seed is sown, not everyone will respond rightly. It won't always fall on good soil. Some will have their interest piqued and they'll know there's something to that, but it's not worth giving my life to. And then in verses 21 to 29, it recounts the story of John being killed by Herod. You'll notice the repetition of Herod's name also. That signals to you who, you, who they want you to focus on, this wicked ruler who really wasn't a king He actually wasn't called a king. There's speculation as to why Mark calls him a king. He was a tetrarch. His father was Herod the Great, who was a king. And then as his father died, Rome took his kingdom and split it between his sons. And so Herod was one of those sons, and he had a piece of that kingdom, which kind of makes it laughable when Herod says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. That puny little kingdom wasn't worth anything. But it's a collision of the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of God. And it appears for now that the kingdom of Herod wins. But we've read the end of the story, haven't we? But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Do you see the self-centeredness? Who throws themselves a birthday party? Prideful people that love themselves, that's who. Or sometimes people who don't have other people who are nice enough to throw them a party. I'll let you off the hook. Some of you were like, oh man. (laughs) Hey, if there's cake, I'm there. (laughs) So he throws himself a party and he invites all the nobles, all the military commanders, all the leading men of Galilee. It's an important party for a man who thinks himself to be very important. I won't go into the details, but most likely it was a thoroughly corrupt party. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Stupid. We have enough stories in the Old Testament when someone makes a dumb vow and then they're caught in it. And they end up, for instance, killing their own daughter. Verse 23, and he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? See, she's exercising wisdom. This is a big promise. I've got a golden ticket. I'm going to think about what it is that I want. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. See, mama was running the house. Verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I don't know if she intentionally amplified the request to include the platter or if perhaps there's just more detail. Maybe, she, maybe the Herodias did want his head on a platter. But either way, it highlights the gross injustice, the, the total depravity of this scene. And the king was exceedingly sorry he realized it was a foolish vow to make. Which is why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't make vows. Just be a person of your word. 
And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Why? Because if he broke his word, then everybody would think of him as a liar. What was Herod most concerned about? What everybody else thought about him. He wasn't concerned about the righteous thing to do. He could have said, no, I won't do that. John's a righteous man. John has not not done one single thing wrong. I won't do it. I don't care what my reputation is. I won't do it. But he caved to the influence of others. He gave in to the fear of man. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. Talk about the loaves of ministry. And then we come back. Or, and then verse 29 says, the only mention of anything worthy of dignity in this entire section here of the recounting of John's death, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. John's disciples were faithful all the way to the end. They said, our rabbi, our teacher has been killed. Let's go honor him. You see a picture of anyone else here in this recounting? Does this remind you of anyone? It's a picture of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. It teaches us that as you follow Jesus Christ, you must follow him no matter what the cost might be. Even if that cost is your own head, you must follow him. We must follow him because he was faithful to endure this for us. The reality is that probably none of our heads will be cut off. But at the same time, the reality is that we have many brothers and sisters who today are experiencing that type of death. It's estimated that the persecution of the church is at an all-time high, that there's never been as much persecution as there is now. You can read about some of that persecution in that little bulletin insert. As the church constantly retells stories of Christians suffering death because they refuse to not witness to Jesus Christ. This is what we learn from John. His death reminds us that the people of God will face injustice. It will perhaps include unlawful, unjust imprisonment and unlawful and unjust killing. But that's the cost. It's not just Mark that teaches us about this. You remember these lessons from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 25 says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures suffering, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We sang earlier, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Oh, yes, I will. It costs the Son of God. And it's not my sin I see upon that cross. It's my Savior I see upon that cross. Peter instructs the church on how to suffer well in gospel ministry, in the particulars of everyday life, whether it be for the the housewife or the janitor or the CEO, whatever it might be. He continues in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 16. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And he concludes his teaching on suffering with the simple statement from 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And that's it. You will suffer because your Christ suffered. So because you will suffer, make sure that you suffer well. Do good while you suffer. Just like John did good, preaching righteousness to the very end. Even though it cost him his head, he still preached the message. I was told a story this summer from one of my friends from the Doctor of Ministry program who serves as a pastor in a church in North Carolina. We were walking to lunch one day, and I'm not sure, I don't quite remember how this story came up, but he started to tell the story of something that was going on presently in their church about a missionary family that they were looking to support and minister. They were already supporting them financially. They were already out in the field. They were serving somewhere in the Middle East, As you probably know, when you serve there, you can't really disclose where they are located because persecution is is always at the ready. And so he was telling us this story of an event that happened just this year. This family had moved to this Middle Eastern country uh, some time ago, and they had children there. One of their children, the oldest, was a Christian and was a faithful witness to the gospel, and he also liked sports. And so, as you know, many other parts of the world uh, like the game of foot, uh, soccer. They call it football. They don't know. <laughs> Anyways. 
They were on the soccer field. And one of the ways that he would seek to share the gospel was to play soccer with the local kids. He would play soccer with them, and as he was playing, he would tell them about Jesus, the Messiah, the one who has died for your sins, who rose from the grave, and who, who now offers forgiveness for all who repent of their sins and believe in him. And one little boy that he was playing with one day went home and told his dad. There's a man talking about Jesus on the soccer field. And his dad was filled with rage. And he went to that soccer field. And right there and then, this very year, killed that young man who was testifying to Jesus Christ. And word got around to mom and dad. And the friends who told them said, you got to get out of here because they're coming for you. And so they got what they could and they left their house. But the dad said, he said, I'm not leaving without my son's body. And so they made arrangements for him to get to the hospital and get his son's body so that he could bring it home with him. That happened this year. But we can rejoice that that teenage boy, that faithful martyr, is in the very same place that John the Baptist is right now, fully intact, who is more alive than they ever were in this life who will greet us one day when we get there, regardless of how we get there, will welcome us together and we will look each other in the eyes and we will dance and we will sing and we will say, it was all worth it. As we center our lives on the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we remember it's all about the message. We recognize the cost and then we go with a full head of steam because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your might. Thank you for your authority. Thank you for your instruction. Thank you for the warnings we receive and thank you for your spirit who gives us power. Lord, I think I can confess on behalf of all of us, I certainly confess on my own behalf, I am weak. If I were left entirely up to myself, I wouldn't be faithful to you like that. that young man on the soccer field would put me to shame if it were all up to me. But I rejoice, we rejoice in the fact that it's not up to us. We don't minister in our strength. We do nothing in our own strength. We are nothing but jars of clay built in with weakness to show that the message that we hold inside is the very power of God. The world may mock us, mistreat us, execute injustice toward us, kill us, but no one will ever stamp out the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
no one will ever thwart you from building your church. Jesus, you made the promise. We believe and we know you will keep the promise. So help us then to orient our lives in every aspect around the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only message that saves the sinner. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.